So Human Rights Watch has documented the abuse that refugees face in Rwanda. For example, in 2018, at least 12 Congolese refugees were shot dead by Rwandan police when they protested a cut to food rations. They were unarmed, protesting their conditions. Now, the authorities then arrested and prosecuted over 60 refugees on charges including rebellion and spreading false information with intent to create a hostile international opinion against Rwanda. The Rwandan government really does not tolerate debate, dissent or speaking out against Hello and welcome to the Still We Rise podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. You're joining us at a precarious time for human rights in Britain particularly alarming for people seeking asylum who have to endure hostile demonstrations outside their hotel accommodation by far-right protesters who've been emboldened by the Home Secretary Suella Braverman's inflammatory language. So not only does the hostile environment endure, this week we learned that the asylum ba backlog has risen to 166,000. So almost 110,000 people have been waiting for an initial decision on their claim for over six months. The figures also show that in 2022, the Home Office only managed to process 23,000 claims. So how do they plan to resolve this? Well, the Home Office has announced plans to streamline the system by scrapping interviews in some cases. So instead of face-to-face -face interviews, some 12,000 people from Afghanistan, Eritrea, Libya, Syria, and Yemen will fill in a 10-page questionnaire in English, which they're mandated to return to their home office within 20 working days. The move aims to reduce the backlog, which Prime Minister Sunak wants to see largely eradicated by the end of this year. It isn't quite clear what sort of assistance is being availed to these claimants in terms of translation and legal advice. So admits all these changes, the Rwanda plan is an albatross around every person who arrives in Britain without prior authorization. The High Court late last year deemed that the Tory government's plan is actually legal and it puts Britain on a similar path to that taken by the Australian government in outsourcing the processing of refugees to the Pacific Islands of Nauru and Manus in their case. So now we know that on those islands, the United Nations recorded incidents of violence, systemic sexual abuse of children, inadequate medical and physical care, and regrettably, several suicides. And at what cost? Independent analysis shows that it cost 400,000 Australian dollars to keep an individual asylum seeker on Nauru per year. And so today, we, we're looking at Britain's diminishing rights record through the lens of a human rights watch whose work across the world is well, well established and respected. Joining us to talk about these issues, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Emily McDonnell, the UK Advocacy and Communications Coordinator at Human Rights Watch. So welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for having me, Nathan. Pleasure to speak with you. No, we're really grateful you could come on. So let's get straight into it. Um, by signing the Memorandum of Understanding with the Rwanda government, passing the Nationality and Borders Act, uh, 
and taking steps to repeal and replace the Human Rights Act. What do you make of these actions by the British government? What, what do they amount to? And do they work to dismantle the international refugee protection framework? Yes, the UK government is actively seeking to dismantle the international refugee protection framework in the UK for people seeking asylum, particularly those who have arrived through irregular means to the UK. And the UK is, is basically reneging on fundamental principles underpinning the Refugee Convention, a convention that the UK itself was a primary drafter of. You mentioned the Nationality and Borders Act, which, as it was going through Parliament, was fittingly dubbed the anti-refugee bill by the sector. Now this criminalises seeking asylum, discriminates against refugees based on how they arrived, mm. authorises pushbacks of boats in the channel and provides for offshore processing, which has now come to life with, with the Rwanda scheme. Now this deal really represents an abrogation of the UK's international responsibilities and obligations to asylum seekers and refugees. Mm. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, Nathan, Rwanda cannot be deemed a safe third country. And then, of course, we have the potential repeal of the Human Rights Act, which will not only have a huge impact on asylum seekers, but will significantly weaken human rights protections for all in the UK. And just to add, this attack on the rights of asylum seekers and refugees, alarmingly, we now have the Home Secretary and the government considering bringing in an immigration bill that would prevent anyone who arrives irregularly to the UK from being able to claim asylum and removing their ability to appeal their removal. So this is just a, it will be a further breach of the UK's obligations under international refugee law. I mean, what, what comes out very clearly from what you're saying is, are we at the stage where we possibly should contemplate that this convention may be rewritten and Britain will lead that charge to do that. Because, because if, if it is the case that people who are deemed by the UK to arrive irregularly and they're criminalized, mm. that sort of waters down completely refugee rights. It certainly does. And the principles that you know, that underpin the Refugee Convention of mm. non-discrimination, non-penalisation and non-reformer. Mm. Um, you know, the UK following suit and following what other countries are doing in terms of externalising their protection responsibilities, disregarding their obligations and responsibilities under the Refugee Convention, it really poses a threat to the whole refugee regime. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really terrible. Now, I know Human Rights Watch has written compellingly about Rwanda's questionable human rights records. So talk to, talk to us about what you've documented. So Human Rights Watch has been, has been documenting Rwanda's appalling human rights record. Um, and we've concluded that it is not a safe country to send mm -hmm. asylum seekers to. Rwanda has a known track record that continues to this day of extrajudicial killings, mm -hmm. unlawful and arbitrary detention, ill-treatment and torture in official and unofficial detention facilities, repression of free speech, abusive prosecutions, and significant targeting of critics and dissidents. And the UK government knows this. In 2021, the government denounced Rwanda's human rights record before the UN, um, urging Rwanda to 
you know, respect the rule of law and respect human rights. And now it's calling it one of the safest countries in the world. Uh, so Human Rights Watch has documented the abuse that refugees face in Rwanda. For example, in 2018, at least 12 Congolese refugees were shot dead by Rwandan police when they protested a cut to food rations. Mm -hmm. They were unarmed protesting their conditions. Now, the authorities then arrested and prosecuted over 60 refugees on charges including rebellion and spreading false information with intent to create a hostile international opinion against Rwanda. The Rwandan government really does not tolerate debate, dissent or speaking out against government policies at all. And one one Burundian refugee living in Rwanda basically thumbed up the experience, which is that life in Rwanda is okay as long as you keep your mouth shut. Mm. And, and just recently in our world report that Human Rights Watch released of um, reflecting back on 2022, the attacks and threats by the Rwandan government um, against Rwandan refugees living abroad continued. So there's several cases of Rwandan refugees being killed, disappeared or arrested in suspicious circumstances. And of course, there are a number of other issues that Human Rights Watch have documented, including the government's treatment of LGBT individuals. Um, authorities in 2021 rounded up arbitrarily detained and abused transgender and gay people, among other vulnerable groups at the Gakondo Transit Centre in Kigali. I mean, that's, those, those findings are, are really extraordinary. Paul Kagama is on, is on the record speaking recently in Kigali. What, what he says is actually quite curious. To some of our listeners, it might actually sound pretty xenophobic. He's speaking here about DRC refugees. He says, quote, we cannot keep being the host to refugees for which later on we are held accountable and in some way even abused refugees as a result of ethnic cleansing in another country and we must be the dumping ground this is not rwanda's problem so what do you foresee i mean if they can if he can say such things about refugees from a neighboring country drc what more people who are a diversity of nationals that britain will send to kigali what kagami's statement clearly shows is his willingness and the Rwandan government's willingness to really politicise the rights of refugees when it suits their political agenda. So mm -hmm. the comments that Kagame made could be referencing the refugee deaths that I mentioned in 2018, but it really shows the government's refusal to take responsibility and ensure accountability for abuses committed by Rwanda security forces, including against refugees. Now, we have a UK government that is willfully ignoring the facts on the ground mm. and is whitewashing Rwanda's human rights record to justify its conclusion that Rwanda is a safe third country. And by referring to the fact that Rwanda has a strong track record of hosting refugees, for example, from the Congo. And now we have statements like this, which really shows that Rwanda is not a reliable international partner. The UK cannot rely upon Rwanda's assurances that it will and can ensure the safety of asylum seekers sent there because as Kagame and the Rwandan government choose, they can politicise this, this issue and the rights of refugees as they see fit. Yeah, they're, they're not only whitewashing uh, Rwanda's human rights record. I mean, there's, there's, this is transactional. 
because the British government is paying hundreds of millions of pounds. What, what do you make of that? This is a very common trend um, that we're seeing in terms of externalization strategies. And it's exactly the same model that Australia uses, which is wealthy countries um, paying other countries. You are with usually with lower, significantly lower GDPs who are in need of development aid, who will agree to this deal and will agree to house and process asylum seekers and refugees. Um, and the power imbalance of these deals is very stark. Yeah, now, Emily, you, you have experience of setting up and running a refugee service, which you, you did in Tasmania. The Rwanda plan appears to be modelled on Australia's policy of processing asylum claims in Nauru and, and Manus Islands. So your proximity at the time um, will be instructive for our audience. What what parallels and similarities can you draw between this Rwanda plan and those Pacific Islands hosting Australia's refugees? Yes, the Rwanda scheme is indeed very much following in the footsteps of Australia, um, as well as the US, in fact. Mm. Australia and the US have been really at the forefront of implementing these types of strategies. Um, where they're seeking to avoid or shift their obligations entirely onto another country. Now, Australia has frequently touted its model of offshore detention on Nauru and Manus. Mm -hmm. It's the, you know, the former Australian foreign minister, Alexander Downer, one of the architects of Australia's offshoring regime, you know, speaks out in favour of the UK doing this. And in fact, he's now on the independent monitoring committee for the Rwanda scheme. But there are real clear parallels so in both cases, um, the UK and Australia, uh, it's, it involves expelling asylum seekers to a place they've never likely been before. Mm -hmm. You know, most asylum seekers arriving in the UK will never have set foot in Rwanda. The same can be said for asylum seekers who arrive in Australia by boat, likely never to have been to Nauru or Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. In terms of how it operates, you know, this is a one-way ticket. Despite what people may think when they hear the term offshore processing, mm -hmm. it's a one-way ticket where those individuals will never have the chance to receive refugee protection in Australia or the UK. And as I mentioned, it's th this power relationship, the relationship that exists is wealthy countries entering agreements with countries that, that need that development aid and who agree to these deals because of those financial advantages and incentives. And these are places where international human rights and refugee standards will not be met. Mm. There are a lack of adequate safeguards. And as we've seen in the Australian context, and which is now the same in the UK, is they're introduced to deter asylum seekers from arriving in the country by boat and they completely remove or limit the chance to ever resettle in that country. I mean, that that's extraordinary. I, I don't think that that's been particularly clear, at least in the UK media, that this is a one-way ticket. It, it's been made to seem it like that, that this is just processing in Rwanda and that there is a prospect of, of coming back to the UK if you're found to have a, a valid claim. So that, that isn't the case, and that wasn't the case in, in Australia either. So it's certainly not the case in the UK. Um, Rwanda is responsible for doing all of the refugee status um, determination. Mm -hmm. If the individual is found to be a refugee, they will receive refugee status and remain in Rwanda. And Rwanda will otherwise handle their rejected claim. 
Um, so the individual who is expelled to Rwanda will never have the chance to um, have their protection claim or to receive refugee status and safety in the UK. And in Australia, um, initially, there was the possibility for resettlement back to Australia. Mm -hmm. But in 2013, as part of, you know, another iteration of policies that came through, it was declared that no one who arrives by Bosch will ever resettle in Australia. So from that point, individuals who were sent to um, Papua New Guinea and Nauru for offshore processing, they will never be allowed back into Australia um, in terms of permanently resettling there. And what we have now is individuals who've been resettled to other countries, including the US. Um, and the Australian government recently agreed with New Zealand that a number of individuals um, on the Pacific Islands that Australia had sent there for offshore processing would be then resettled in New Zealand. Okay. And in terms of processing times of those individuals whilst they're on those islands, what what has Human Rights Watch found about the impact that the the long periods of time that they spend on those islands, which they never envisaged they would go to, has on on those people mm. who are essentially just seeking sanctuary? Look, Nathan, we're coming up at the tenth anniversary of Australia's offshore regime on Nauru and Papua New Guinea, and it has caused immense suffering over years and widespread human rights violations. So the indefinite detention and just the conditions took a really devastating toll on the physical and mental health of refugees and asylum seekers there. 12 people died, have died since the policy began in 2013. Men, women and children have suffered inhumane treatment, medical neglect. And as you mentioned, you know, years of indefinite detention have led to suicides mm -hmm. and there's been an epidemic of self-harm. And you also made reference to the, the widespread violations against women, including yeah. sexual assault, harassment, attempted rape. And, you know, we have been telling and urging the UK not to go down this route, to learn the lessons from this. Um, Australia has faced years of international condemnation. And not only was it ineffective, it was incredibly and is incredibly expensive mm -hmm. and has faced numerous legal challenges. And, and going down this route, um, it does nothing to actually address the reason that people flee um, and why they feel compelled to take these dangerous routes. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's incredibly dispiriting that, that rich countries are capable of doing, of doing such things in the, in the process, trashing their own, their own reputation. So let's look exactly. at what, what the migration sector is doing in the UK, because a lot of legal challenges have have taken place here and in in the high court last year the whole rwanda plan was challenged but it was found to be legal given the background that you've given of what happened in in nauru and and manas having gone through the reasoning of the judges here in the uk what's your analysis of, of their reasoning and, and how this can possibly be, be legal given the refugee convention? So, yes, the, the decision in December from the High Court was, was very disappointing, generally speaking. It found that the general policy, um, so the lawfulness of the scheme on the whole um, to send asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda mm. was consistent with the refugee convention and other obligations imposed by the UK imposed on the UK government 
Um, but it did find that in the individual cases, mm -hmm. um, the government had failed to properly consider their individual circumstances. So those decisions were set aside and the Home Secretary has to remake their decisions because the decision making was flawed. Now, it, unfortunately, it's not surprising that the court um, held that way on the general policy. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it says a lot that in all of the individual cases, it wasn't unlawfully, um, which means basically if the policy ever gets off the ground, that every decision will very much need to properly assess the individual circumstances. Otherwise, it will be subject to, ju to judicial review. This, given it's such a crucial case with huge implications, mm -hmm. this, this is likely to go all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. Um, it has been appealed and the appeal was, the appeal was granted um, in January. Now, in terms of the decision itself, it is very disappointing because, as we've been clear and from what we've documented, Rwanda is not a safe third country. The assurances given by the Rwandan government, um, as we just discussed, Kagame and his regime cannot be considered a good faith partner. Mm. And there were some very alarming conclusions in the judgment. For example, that, that the High Court didn't find it relevant that refugees were killed in 2018 and the circumstances that led to their protests would not be repeated because the UK has this scheme and they have this memorandum of understanding with the government. They've been given a lot of money. There's a complaints mechanism. However, there is absolutely no way that an independent monitoring mechanism can be effective in Rwanda. As, as, as I alluded to, um, this is a space where political opposition, mm -hmm. civil society, and media remain absolutely closed and hostile to all scrutiny. So independent oversight just can't be ensured. Now, we know from Australia that refugees, you know, they routinely spoke out and protested against their conditions. But in Rwanda, asylum seekers will be, they'll be at risk of abuse if they speak up about their treatment or their conditions. So they either speak out and potentially face this risk um, or they can be forced to self-censor. Um, and more principally, beyond our grave human rights concerns mm -hmm. with, with the conclusion of, of safe third country processing, is that the UK High Court is allowing the UK to abrogate its responsibilities under the Refugee Convention. Um, it's allowing to shirk them onto Rwanda, onto another country, instead of handling the claims itself, which is really no solution to fixing um, the broken asylum system or delivering a system that is fit for purpose. I mean, some, somebody who who's listening to you that who who questions why the UK is doing this might might posit a question there, Emily, and say, "Is the framework and the tenets of the Refugee Convention itself are they inadequate in that they're not really binding?" Because it appears on the face of it as if there's like some margin of appreciation where individual states can interpret the convention in the way that suits them. In international law, states can send asylum seekers to safe third countries, and that, that is compliant with the Refugee Convention. Mm. Um, however, you can't send asylum, it's very clear that you can't send asylum seekers to states that do not meet the criteria for a safe third country, 
which Rwanda cannot. Mm. Now, these are some of them obviously responsibilities. They are softer principles and norms. But the International Refugee Convention imposes clear obligations on the UK, as does the European Convention on Human Rights, as does the Human Rights Act, that you cannot send individuals to a place where they would be at risk and face serious harms. So it's very clear, and these are very binding obligations on the UK not to do this. Yeah, so it, in essence, this this judgment drives a coach and horses through the whole international refugee protection regime. It is really striking the core principles of the refugee protection regime, and more broadly, the principles of global responsibility sharing, which mm. is what we've discussed. You know, wealthy countries, instead of processing asylum claims, in their territory um, and uh, abiding by, you know, the fact that individuals should only be removed to countries that they have a meaningful connection to. They shouldn't be removed to a state that they've never even been through. Mm. Um, that, that we have wealthy countries completely abrogating their responsibilities and closing their doors. And the very concerning implication of this is that it gives the, if, you know, this is what the High Court found. Mm. Obviously, this will go through the appeal process. But the UK High Court thus far has given the green light to this scheme, which risks a real race to the bottom amongst other like-minded states that may be experiencing individuals arriving irregularly. So this really threatens the international regime itself. And we know that other states mm. like Denmark are watching the UK they're wanting to see what the UK courts will say. And if they deem them lawful, this really opens up for more and more states shifting their responsibilities onto states in the global south. And, and do you think this will have the effect of emboldening despotic regimes as well to, to act even worse now? Because countries which used to take refugees uh, from all over the world, like the UK, are, are, are abrogating on their, their obligations to do so. Absolutely. You know, we have already seen countries that disproportionately shoulder responsibility for the majority of refugees reneging on their own obligations. Mm. Human Rights Watch has documented um, many times how Turkey is, is pushbacking, is pushing back asylum seekers at its borders yeah. and expelling them and refooling them. But in addition, beyond, if we think beyond refugees and asylum seekers, the fact that the UK is so happy to sideline and disregard respect for international norms, mm. international standards, signals to other states and serial violators of human rights that they too can disregard their international obligations if it suits what they politically want to do. Yeah. Now, let's, let's move on to talking about something that's really contentious but would be really helpful for our audience to understand what Human Rights Watch makes of this. Can you disentangle for us? There's a lot of political rhetoric in this country around refugees making claims in safe countries. So we've seen the phenomenon of refugees crossing the channel on small boats because of a lack of safe routes. The charge from what you would say are right-leaning newspapers in the UK and, and media, is that France is a safe country. And they argue that why don't they make claims in France? You could put that alongside what we've seen in Ukraine, 
where Ukrainians are, are crossing the border over into Poland. And Poland is a safe country. But those people from Ukraine are being given safe passage to the UK. So disentangle all of this for us. What do you think is going on? This basically speaks to a key a key issue that a lot of individuals raise that um, individuals need to claim asylum in the first safe country they pass through. That, you know, why would someone cross from France um, when France is safe? Mm. Now, this is a myth. Asylum seekers do not need to claim asylum in the first safe country they reach. This isn't the case. There is no requirement under international law, explicitly or implicitly, under the Refugee Convention for individuals to stay or claim asylum in the first safe country. Now, sometimes people think of um, when the UK was a member of the European Union. Mm. Now, the UK at that time was part of the Dublin regulation with other EU countries, which meant that in certain circumstances, the UK could return asylum seekers to an EU country they had passed through. Now, this depends on a hierarchy of criteria, but the UK at times had the option to return individuals to EU countries they had passed through. But now that the UK is no longer in the EU, um, this, this no longer applies. And, you know, one of the things to really note is that the majority of individuals do stay in France. Mm. Um, it's only a, a smaller number that come through and travel to the UK who, who, have a, who usually have very good reasons to. They may have family here that they're trying to unite with and they don't have a safe route or another safe avenue to, to do so, to reunify or they have community ties here, or they speak English, um, or they have other ties. And I think it's important to note because often this political rhetoric also adds to it the idea that the individuals coming by boat are economic migrants because they've left a safe country. Yeah. Now, obviously, all migrants deserve to have their human rights respected and to be treated humanely. But in addition, the majority of asylum claims are accepted, two-thirds. So individuals who are crossing um, the English Channel from, from France, they two-thirds of their asylum claims are accepted, they're found to be refugees, and they're coming from countries where the majority are coming from countries where human rights abuses and persecution are rife. Mm. And on Ukraine, the Ukraine question, and Ukrainians arriving in, in Poland and being given safe passage, that's similar to, to Hong Kong nationals. Do you think the UK is deliberately moving towards a, a resettlement model and doesn't want people arriving in Britain to claim asylum at all? Because what appears in the Nationality and Borders Act, at least, is that those people, people will be given different rights dependent on mode of arrival. Absolutely. So in passing that act, the UK legalised and legislated for a two-tiered discriminatory asylum system. And despite the fact that refugee status is, is solely grounded on your threat of persecution or serious harm, hmm. you have two different groups who are treated differently based on how they arrived. Now, you know, the UK's response to Ukrainians and Hong Kong nationals, this is really positive, mm. but it shows quite starkly the double standards in how we, as the UK, as well as other countries, responded to Ukrainians, but how it differs for those coming from the Middle East and Africa, 
um, such measures that the UK has has implemented, they really do disproportionately affect people of colour and are racialized. You know, individuals who can't easily get a visa to travel safely to the UK. And, you know, there's no such thing in the UK as an asylum visa. So what I think is really important for us to also think about is although there have been problems with the Hong Kong and the Ukrainian schemes, Mm -hmm. if we look at them, and especially Ukraine, it really shows the immense compassion and how the UK can swiftly respond and provide sanctuary if they want to. Mm -hmm. And it shows that there's a different way. There's another way to treat and respond to people fleeing conflict, persecution. They can treat them humanely and fairly. And of course, we welcome the UK increasing resettlement, increasing safe routes. However, regardless of how many safe routes you open up, the government still has a duty under international law to not to deny access to asylum seekers who arrive at its shores. It must treat them with humanity and with dignity and afford them human rights protections. Individuals have the right to seek asylum and just because you offer more resettlement, Mm -hmm. that will only ever be for a limited few people. No one will ever be able to access. There'll never be enough numbers, essentially. Um, So you always have to respect the right to seek asylum, which the UK is trying to avoid. Yeah, that's that's critically important and I'm I think our listeners will be will have been interested to learn there about amplifying safe safe routes that safe passage is actually possible. Some of those people who are coming across the channel, um, Emily are, are unaccompanied children. And we've seen in recent weeks that there's children who've gone missing um, in Brighton, some 200 children, and 13 of those children are said to be under 16. Are you concerned about the way that the Home Office operates? And are you reasonably confident that they've got capacity and are competent enough to treat those children with with dignity and respect and to protect them and to safeguard them? The the reports of the hundreds of unaccompanied minors going missing is is incredibly distressing and incredibly alarming. And I think it really shows that the state of the UK asylum system is broken and it really needs really needs to be changed. The UK is focusing on externalisation, deterrence, hostile environment policies, rather than actually fixing the problems. As it stands, a lot of these failures are the result of the government's own failings. The fact that they have not invested enough resources, time and capacity into fixing and addressing these issues. And as a result of failing in their duty to protect the individuals in their care. And so the UK has a choice that either, you know, continues on this route of employing policies that will never be the solution, or it chooses to change track and actually address the broken system and put in the resources required rather than spending millions on a scheme with Rwanda that will only cause more human suffering is incredibly costly and you know and focus on as we said introducing safe routes so that people don't have to take those dangerous journeys yeah and and finally and it's been a really fascinating conversation with you emily um suella braverman the latest home secretary uh under this tory government 
she uses the language of of invasion and recently most people will have seen a clip that's been all over social media of a, a holocaust survivor who confronted her about her use of this inflammatory language she she refuses to resile from her comments and she claims that she needs to speak up for the british people given your experience on these issues what's what's the direction of travel uh with britain and its its human rights record under a home secretary like that i think more generally speaking to begin with we're very concerned about the current trajectory of the uk on human rights more broadly mm. um the disregard for international norms is a threat to human rights protections in the uk but as we discussed it's likely to have a very significant damaging flow and effect across europe and globally on respect for international law and standards you know the fact that in response to the european court of human rights grounding the first rwanda flight um the uk introduced a clause into the bill of rights bill which is 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 planned to repeal the human rights act mm. saying that the uk court can ignore interim injunctions from the european court you know this is designed to protect people from irreparable damage and the fact that the uk is is thinking of doing this um really just shows as i said that countries and governments the uk sending a signal to them that they can also rip up their obligations they can disregard them not only when it comes to asylum seekers and refugees but others as well and at a time when we have you know it's the one year anniversary of of russia's invasion of ukraine the defense of these international norms is really critical and the uk is the direction is that the uk is just totally and and blatantly disregarding so many fundamental norms that have previously been held to be you know british values and the fact we have a home secretary who uses such dangerous inflammatory and divisive language it really has no place in any society it is emboldening extremists it's othering asylum seekers and pointing them as threats which will do nothing to create a better a better society in britain um yeah so i think that it, it's it's just we're really gravely concerned and and all we can do is keep speaking out against it as others are doing as well and hope and push the uk government to change the direction of travel um because otherwise the uk will also it's also tying its own hands in its ability to promote human rights through its foreign policy the uk is holds itself out as a leader to influence other countries on human rights to to propel them to be more human rights respecting that's that's been one of the key things that the uk and its foreign policy seeks to do and you know this current direction means the uk will be very limited in how it can promote human rights globally and if this rwanda plan um if the legal challenges go all the way to to the european court do you foresee the human the uk trying to pull out of the the echr i think that's a very real risk um i think that if if the strasbourg court blocks it then you know it's really it's been floated around um that the the government's considering it and obviously nothing's confirmed but i think that is a real risk Mm. On that note, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you, Emily. Thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you so us. much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Emily for that forthright analysis which was really instructive. 
The United Kingdom government has set itself on a course where it's intentionally abandoning its duties towards refugees, opting instead to create safe passage for the likes of Hong Kong nationals and Ukrainians, those who have no safe routes and risk their lives arriving on small boats face a different fate, some as we've heard may even end up in Kagame's Rwanda where Human Rights Watch has documented egregious rights violations. There was a time when Britain assured the dignity of those who fled war zones and despotic regimes it seems no longer. Now it plans to outsource its refugees to the global south which already hosts most of the world's refugees. There is no doubt that a lot of this deprivation of fundamental Universal human rights is morally reprehensible and will embolden autocrats around the world, further putting vulnerable people at risk. So help build awareness by sharing this episode across all of your social media platforms and go to hrw.org to learn more about their fantastic work. Until the next episode of the Still We Rise podcast, thanks for listening and goodbye.